It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome back in. Welcome back in for progress alongside former NBA executive. And you can hear him all over Mad Dog Sports Radio, NBA Radio. My guy, Amin El Hassan. We're going to hold it down for you today. In a couple minutes, we got the uh, neurosurgeon, Dr. Myron Rowe. He's going to join for progress a little bit later. Former NFL player, 15 years in the league, Chad Brown. He's going to join us about uh, his entrepreneurial skills way back from his college days i bet you i bet you you won't figure this one out yeah he's got some good things going on but first i mean i want to start here because i just got back nfl draft and look great weekend for the draft in vegas i had a great time seeing all the prospects and getting all the uh the stories and Mm -hmm. just uh, man a couple dudes who i've met along the way we've i've had four or five interviews with and just to see that delight, that that joy. I know I once had it back when I was drafted to me. Um, but then all of a sudden now you sort of get the fallout. And some of the fallout uh, is some of the comments that have been made by executives who sort of explain their picks. They explain, hey, why did you take this guy? What did you see in this player? And, and I will start here because uh, the Bears National Scout, okay, the Chicago Bears, their National Scout, Chris, uh, Chris Prescott, uh, they drafted uh, Jaquan Brisker, the Chicago Bears did. And so when asked about the drafting of, Jab- of Jaquan Brisker, the Bears National Scout, Chris Prescott, he said this, and I quote, Jaquan is what we, how would you call it? A PhD guy, poor, hungry, and desperate. Football is his life. This is this kid's life. There's a lot to like about what you see when a guy who's so passionate about football. Now, to me, I think that he honestly believes that of me, but I'm sitting here saying, is that the kind of guys you go after? Like, is that a guy has to be poor, desperate, and hungry for you to draft this person? I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this one. Your thoughts when you first saw that? Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it, it goes back to a long standing kind of belief in front offices, right? That uh, Kirk, I'm sure you, you probably experienced this yourself yeah. as someone who has interest. Oh, that's bad. Oh, it's yeah. Bad. Oh, yeah. He, he likes other things. Like he reads oh, yeah. and he, you know, like our, <laughs> our guest Chad Brown is coming later. Oh, he's into animals and reading yeah. national geographic. Like that's that stuff. It, it's incorrectly, I would say, but has always been a stigma in professional sports that, the athletes who have a life outside of the sport are somehow looked at as a negative, right? And that we want people who don't have a life outside of that because they're going to be fully devoted. And, you know, I know in basketball, the list is very long. Correct. Guys like David Robinson and, you know, uh, uh, Wayman Tisdale and like guys who had legitimate interests outside of 
out, out of the sport. And basically, they had lives. Right. Had, that's what we're talking about. Like, does this guy have a life or not? So it, that's, to me, the upsetting or disappointing part of it. It's not the terminology. We're right. going to get caught up on the terminology that they have a term for. He didn't come up with that on the spot, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you something. Right. That's not, <laughs> that's not a, a special that he came up with in this quote. That's something. Right. That's a term that's used, right? That's not the upsetting part. The upsetting part is that, and, and obviously for, for the young man, uh, the prospect, it, it, it's not not ideal to be cla- classified like that. Right. But it's the idea of how many other athletes are kind of getting demerits or getting sunk on a board because he might have a passion for music, because he might, you know, be a deep thinker. You know, w- one of the greatest players of all time in the NBA is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This man right. has written, written history books about jazz. I mean, this is the definition of someone who does not define himself by just the sport he plays. By that token, we should have demerits on that, right? Mm. We should kind of think less of him. But the reality is him having interests and him having a life did not get in the way of him being a great player who loves the game as well. Yeah, I I think that's the part for, for me is that you had a guy in Kayvon Thibodeau out of Oregon, he was the fifth overall pick by the Giants. And leading up to the draft, people were like, does he love football? Because he has an interest outside the game. And I'm like, well, I mean, the dude, when, when the tape is on, when the game is being played, he's one of the best players out there. Why should what he does off the field, and he ain't talking about getting in trouble. We ain't talking about in the club. We ain't talking about people he hanging around with. We talking about him doing things to set up his life after football. Mm-hmm. Why is that a problem? But you want this kid who's poor, desperate, hungry. These are the kind of players I want because they're going to focus on nothing but football. I would say this. I mean, I've seen it hurt guys like that more times than not because I've been around those guys that didn't really have much outside of football. Like if this football don't work, I had dudes with tattoos on their faces. I'm like, bro, I don't know if you're going to be able to go into corporate America. So this football has to work. I'm just, I, I just, I, I don't get the, 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 just the reasoning behind it at times. There are guys that buckle under the pressure. Like yes. You said of like, if this doesn't work out, I have nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. There are guys that burn out. So it's not even necessarily that, Oh man, the pressure's too much. It's like you do this, you do this, you do this, but there's in any every one of us, there is a meter. There's only so much of this I can do right. or I can take or I can watch. And if you don't have and that and that's what to me I've always thought the guys who have other interests, that's how you always keep it fresh. Mm. Not to use kind of like a tawdry analogy, but it's like if you and your significant other can like you know introduce some different things like hey we're yeah, going yeah. to date night somewhere different tonight we're gonna go you know it keeps it fresh and new as you're engaging in new things as opposed to hey Friday nights we always go watch a movie and go to dinner at the same restaurant every single Friday at some right. point it loses the spark you lose the joy for having it my my dad always used to say this is like you love chocolate cake that if I fed you chocolate cake every day or every meal by the end of the week you'd be sick of chocolate cake right. It's, it's no different with, with people's careers. It's, we we like to assume that the most successful among us are because they have tunnel vision. Right. They don't do anything else. They don't care about anything else. That's all they care about. But the reality is that diversity of stuff that you're doing keeps your brain fresh. 
and keeps you more engaged. I watched this documentary, Kirk, a couple of years ago. It's called In Search of Greatness. Mm. And they sat down with Wayne Gretzky, Jerry Rice, uh, Pele, like these guys that are unquestioned the greatest to ever play their position or their sport. You know what they found about like what, oh, growing up, did you like, you know, I remember they asked Gretzky, did you only play hockey? He's like, no. As soon as hockey season was over, I would throw my hockey gear and I'd pick up a baseball mitt. See, I wanted mm -hmm. to be a major league baseball player. That was my dream. And then as life went on, he realized I'm pretty good at this hockey thing. <laughs> yeah. And he focused. And so they, they looked at all of these other great players like Kobe Bryant, right? Um, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, and um, Antonio Gates, right? Like, mm -hmm. And all of them had, like, growing up, they played different sports. And that allowed them to, A, kind of problem solve outside the box of whatever their sport played, but also it allowed them, like, a, rele a mental release so that it wasn't just this, this, this every single day. And that made them better because they were fresh and they were always intellectually engaged. I, like, I, I hope that one day that we can look at players – and kind of see them as humans and not just right. as, well, he's a robot. I want this robot to do this. Why do I care if it can do this other thing that don't help me? But the reality is that should be something that we care about. Yeah, I think that's a perfect segue as we uh, to uh, get ready for our first guest. Because coming up next, we'll talk to a, a former NFL safety, now turned neurosurgeon, other interests outside of football. Coming up next here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Joined now by Dr. Myron Rowe, former FSU football star, NFL star, but now we call him Mr. Neurosurgeon. He joins Forward Progress. And look, Myron, look, I've been, uh, I said, not many people influence me or have a positive light that I'm like, man, whatever he's doing, I want to do as well, Myron. When so many people look at your story and what you've been able to accomplish What's been the biggest thing for you or the joy for you that you take away when people acknowledge what you've been able to do? Well, first, I want to say I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I've obviously known you for a while and followed you <laughs> for a while. And you're you're an amazing uh, representative of, of all good. That's in uh, Young Black Men, for sure, and a role model, for, for sure. Um, so I appreciate you having me. But, uh, you know, I read Dr. Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands, when I was very young. My parents uh, came from the Bahamas and wanted to put uh, black inspirational figures in front of me and my brothers. And I saw his story as somebody who um, looked like me, uh, had parents who focused on education like me, came from a modest background, you know, low income or so uh, growing up. I saw a lot of parallels in his story. And in reading his story, I said, maybe one day after I'm done playing football, I could be also be a neurosurgeon and help save lives. And so now when I hear young people hear my story, and tell me that I'm a role model and they have my picture on their wall, like I had Ben Carson with a picture on my wall during my adolescent years. It makes me feel uh, very good. It makes me feel fulfilled. It makes me feel like the journey that we've taken uh, is incredibly rewarding and um, has made an impact. And so that's definitely a blessing for sure. You know, Myron, take me back a little bit because you've been uh, an outstanding athlete early on in your early years, but yet still 4.0 student. Uh, what is, you were also an uh, editor of the school newspaper. I mean, I don't know everything that you were able to do from when middle school to high school. How were you able to not only keep your eye on 
things outside of athletics where so many times you're the best athlete, where you're highly touted, people want to move you to this box of just being a professional athlete. How were you able to say, you know what, I'm more than an athlete early on at, at, at that age? Wow. I absolutely credit my parents. You know, we came from Nassau, Bahamas, uh, with not a lot of money, our, our family, everyone's still back home in, in the Bahamas right now. And then getting to New Jersey is where we landed, where no one really around us uh, was Bahamian. No one um, listened to the kind of music we listened to, ate our crack kunk and stew kunk and boiled kunk and all the different kunk salads that we eat. Uh, so it was, um, it was a different environment. And so my parents said, look, here's an opportunity for you to be in a country with an abundance of resources and ample opportunities for you, you young men, all five, all five of us, four of my brothers and myself, to be outstanding citizens and leaders and thinkers and, and Christian and men. And so they wanted us to maximize all aspects of our person, not just as the athlete, but as a leader, as a thinker, as a, a friend, as a brother, and certainly as a student. And so I took every task that I went into with the same level of intensity and the same level of importance as I did on the football field. So if I'm trying to get an A in the class, I want to get 100%. If somebody got a 99, I want to get one-on-one or whatever I can because I just want to continue to excel. And my parents really injected and infused hardwire that mindset into me and my brothers. And then they'll put people, like I said, Dr. Carson, Kofi Annan, Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington. I was reading all their books when I was younger to say, like, look, there's more that can be done outside of just being an athlete. And it was a, it was a great sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, installation of, uh, of that sort of principle uh, that has guided me my entire life. You know, highly touted throughout high school. You go to Florida State University to not only play football. You, you went there football first, but as you got there, you started to expand and be able to show off just your intellectual talents uh, and then be able to be awarded a, a, a Rhodes Scholar and to go off and make that decision to go study at Oxford. Do you remember at that time people pulling you in, in what ways in which, hey, hey, football, 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 this is Florida State. We play football, but to realize the opportunity of a once in a lifetime, very few people get a chance to do what you were able to do. Do you remember that the tug of war that was going on at that time? It was a very intense tug of war for sure. I, I went to Florida state because, you know, I enjoyed Bobby Bowden. I enjoyed the culture down there in Tallahassee. My cousin Samari role played there right. as well. Mm -hmm. So I had grown up watching him and obviously being close to him and being sort of uh, very instrumental in my life. So if I can be like Samari, then maybe I could, you know, do something good in my life on the field. But um, yeah, I, I had Florida State all in my mind since I was younger. And when I got there, I told them I want to be a Rhodes Scholar. I want to start a foundation. I want to graduate in three years and have my degree. I want to be pre-med. I want to uh, give to the community and be a philanthropic leader as well. And Coach Bobby Bowden committed me to that. He said, look, we are going to put and mobilize the resources and activate the people around you so that you can accomplish these goals. Because I'll be honest with you, Kirk. Florida State at the time was going through a situation where they needed to bolster and upscale their academic reputation. And they were like, here's a guy who's a model student athlete who could have <laughs> right. gone to Michigan, Stanford, Notre Dame, Duke. He decided to come to FSU. Let's put him on billboards. Let's get him in front of our boosters. Let's get him on commercials. Let's say that he is the student athlete, the epitome. And let's put the right people around him and support him. And, and they really did. Since freshman year, I was on front street for everything academics at that school and I really did appreciate it. But yes, there were some people who said, you're going to a major power five school. You're an All-American on the field. You should go to the NFL. And then others, more people said, continue to emphasize the student part of that phrase, student athlete, go to Oxford, get that Rhodes Scholarship, immerse yourself in a new culture, get your master's degree, come back to the NFL when you can. It will be there. It's not going anywhere. 
And uh, that was the right choice for me, for sure. But you know, Myron, not many people have that opportunity to sort of reach the 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 highest of heights in different, I would say, uh, in positions or in different job classifications. We know that the highest level of football is the NFL. You were drafted to the NFL. For you right now, being a neurosurgeon, that that's one of the peak. Uh, opportunities of being a doctor or in that field of, of medicine and and, 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 and and in general. So to be able to have both of those under your belt to say, hey, I was drafted. I am also a newer surgeon. I'm continuing to keep going and going and reaching new heights. Do you remember both when you achieved the dream or getting that phone call of not only being drafted, but then also achieving the honor of being a neurosurgeon? I do. I really do. You know, I waited for the third day um, to get drafted by the Tennessee Titans, pick number 207, sixth round. Uh, I put my name before that, Kirk. I'll be back up a little bit. I put my name into the sort of scouting services when I was a junior. Right. I got my undergrad degree in two and a half, two and a half years. So I put my name in and they said I'd be a late first, maybe early second if I ran well. And then I called Samari and Antrell, like, hey, what are the Giants and Ravens saying about me? He said, same thing. You'd be like, a, you know, an early second guy, maybe late first, depending on how things shake out. So I was looking at, you know, really, really good draft position and, um, and a dream come true, essentially. But then Oxford and the Rose Scholarship said, you cannot put off this scholarship. You have to take it. It's either take it or leave it. And so I decided to not take the NFL in 2009 and go to England and spend a year and a half over there and try to stay in shape as best I could. Came back, came back, did the senior bowl, did the combine, then got drafted in the sixth round. So dropped a lot, made a lot less money, you know, was in a practice squad off and on, bouncing around, you know, three years in the NFL and just never really caught on like like I did in and or had the success like I did in college or high school. But I don't regret it because, you know, I look back on it and maybe God was protecting my hand so I can have dexterity to do surgery. <laughs> he was really protecting my head so I didn't have traumatic brain injury so I can cognitively think about these complex cases that we have uh, at Harvard as a neurosurgeon. And so, you know, I look back at it now and I'm just, I'm blessed that I was able to do both. Blessed that I'm able to live, had, had a chance to live the life as an NFL player and speak into the lives of young people who really revere sports and say, oh man, you play in NFL. That's great. And then now I'm able to have my feet in science as a neurosurgeon, as someone who cures and heals and tries to bring people back from the brink of death, bring them to life. And uh, it was, um, it's been a blessing. It's been an outstanding journey. The great thing about it too, a last thing I'll say is both journeys fed each other and continue to feed each other because in the operating room, I still have to walk around as a captain and communicate with people who are different nurses, scrub techs, anesthesia, my co-neurosurgeons and others. I have to prepare like I'm preparing for a game. I have to mentally get focused and be disciplined because you have a life on the table who is looking for you to, to do big things. So it's uh, it's been great. And the seamless transition has been able to work with each career. And I'm glad I'm doing it now. He's a neurosurgeon over at the Harvard Medical Center. He's Myron Roll, former NFL player, joining Forward Progress. And look, Myron, one of the things that I really was, uh, I was excited to see you face front um, in terms of what we went through in the pandemic. And a lot of people saw your face as an African-American man on television telling people about science, where not a lot of people know science, not a lot of people know the research. They don't know. They just see things on history or things they've read. And it's I'm not putting that in my body. And I looked at you and I sat there and I'm watching you and I said, man, he's telling people about science and how this can affect you, how it can help you. 
What did you learn most in being a big advocate throughout the pandemic and getting people understanding of kind of what we were going through as a country? Well, you know, I, I think uh, the thing I learned most in that process is uh, how to deliver the message and how to communicate. I think a yeah. lot of times people were sometimes resistant to hear the scientific evidence, the evidence-based articles, the, the studies, the random control trials, the things that have been peer-reviewed and vetted by some of the leading scholars and the best intellect, women and men around the world. You know, sometimes people refute that based on how you deliver that message. Do you jam it down their throat? Do you tell them this is a mandate? Do you need to do this? Or do you speak to them as a human and reason with them and say, look, I, I, I'm, I'm here not as someone who is um, you know, looking to change your lifestyle or disrupt, you know, your, your daily living and your daily activities. But I'm just trying to provide you with the knowledge and the evidence so you can make the best decision for yourself. And I'm confident that with this information, you will make the best choice because when you drive down the street, you know that if I wear my seatbelt, then yeah, I have a better chance of saving my life and protecting myself. You know that if you ride your bike, wearing a helmet protects you from getting a traumatic brain injury if you crash. You know that if you don't smoke 50 cigarettes a day, your chances of getting lung cancer go down exponentially. So you know these things and you've made calculated decisions before. Let's apply that same logic and that same stream of thought to how we're going to deal with this pandemic. And so that was that was the most important thing for me. Now, not I'm a brain surgeon. I know the central nervous system, the brain and spine. I'm not a respiratory therapist or somebody right. who knows a respiratory system as well, but I had to learn it and I wanted to stand up as an advocate, as you said. And uh, I think the most important thing, especially speaking to our demographic and even demographic of athletes, was making sure that the message and the communication was correct uh, and, and hit them you know, right in the center of their core so they can really make the best choices for them and their families. And with all of this, you got a book upcoming, a book coming up. And the 2% way, I know if I, I've asked you this question before, because everything that you do on social media, um, just when you're writing, everything is always 2%, 2%. Before we talk about the book, let people know about the 2%, where you got it from and how it's impacted your life all the way still to, to this day. Yeah, so I got it from my defense coordinator at Florida State, Mickey Andrews. Uh, he would challenge me and my teammates every day to get 2% better in our backpedaling our ability to disguise blitz packages, our ability to high point the football. He wanted us to have realistic, small, tangible goals of improvement every day. Edify ourselves every single day on that field. And then he'll go to the locker room in the whiteboard after practice and write, okay, roll got 2% better. And the guys would vote on it. Yeah, roll got 2% or roll got 1%. He loafed on that last play. <laughs> and so it held us accountable. It really did. And I sort of extrapolated that mindset to life. And so that any chance encounter that I have any book I read, conference I attend, video I watch, I'm time, trying to extract 2% from that moment to apply it to my trajectory, my journey, so that I'm able to be a better version of myself. And so it's a mindset of how to take a large, seemingly impossible task, right, and break it down one by one to take small, consistent steps every single day and so that those steps lead to bigger victories in the end. When you look back a month, six months, a year from now, you can tell yourself, look, look how much I've grown. Look how much better I've gotten because I did this small steps every single day. And I love my coach for putting that on me. And I, I tweet about it. I post it all the time. And in this book, you know, we talk exactly about that. Like we talk about my story from the Bahamas to New Jersey, to football, to road scholarship, now to Harvard neurosurgery. And in these, in this story arc, I discuss how the 2% way has allowed me to face challenges of feeling like I don't belong, feeling like uncertain about things, feeling relational problems, dealing with my temper and anger. I used to be a 
very, very temperamental young man. I used to get in fights all the time, suspended. And I write about that in the book and how this process sort of helped me come through with that and, and even work, workplace challenges. So I feel like it's a book that can resonate uh, with a lot of people, has utility uh, to a lot of individuals. And we're excited about it. We really are. It comes out May 17th. We're fired up. Yeah, May 17th is a great day. It's my brother's birthday. So um, and he's also a fine member of the uh, great institution of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Yo, yo to all the people out there. My guy, Myron Rowe, as well, one of those uh, cap members of Kappa Alpha Psi. But you mentioned some of the challenges. Everyone always looks at you now or people always see, uh, you know, the success, but they don't see the hard work. They don't see the dedication and also the challenges that you said. What else did you find about yourself in writing this book? Wow. I, I found that I was uh, more vulnerable and more uh, analogous to to uh, to anyone than I really thought before. You know, I mean, sometimes you can get caught up in just the end result of the titles, right? You're NFL player, road scholar, neurosurgeon. But getting to that process, you still face the uncertainty, feeling like you're letting people down, feeling like. You've um, you haven't met expectations that have been placed on you by yourself or other people. When I got cut from the NFL and, and I was told we don't need your services anymore, I was like, man, you know, I, I just I feel like I've let my whole country down in the Bahamas. I feel like I let my friends down. I feel like I was at the prime of my athletic peak, and and here I am now having to sort of adjust and, and shift course. And a lot of people, if they get let go or fired from their position, or maybe they just you know finish one chapter of their life and have to move on to something else there is some pain, there is some, some angst that goes into that. And so I really dive deep into those emotional feelings that I had. I have feelings of not feeling like I belong. I mean, going down to Florida state where my teammates were dreadlocked up gold teeth and the gold teeth don't come out their mouth, you know, jerbo <laughs> jeans and listening to plies and a little boozy. And I'm like, man, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to try to get along with these guys and try to break in and feel like I'm a part of the team. That was a challenge. Sometimes you feel like you're on the outside looking in. So a lot of these struggles that I've faced in my life, haven't really voiced it before, but now it's coming out in this book. And I'm hoping that through these human experiences, people can learn from it, draw inspiration from it, and know that they can achieve success in their own right by applying this 2% way mindset. Just a couple more minutes here on Forward Progress with Dr. Myron Roll. And you, one of the things that I've been reading about in terms of what you always try to preach is not letting anyone determine your path. Don't let anyone put you in a box. And so to the young listeners out there, to the people who are listening, who sometimes feel like they're pigeonholed or they're put in this box, what do you tell them? What is that message? I tell them you need to take the pen and write your own story, because if you don't, someone else will pick it up for you and tell your own story for yourself. And then you look back and say, well, where where does this come from? Who is this person? I don't even recognize the person they're writing about because it's not me. You have to determine how you want to be treated and how you want to be uh, viewed in this world. And, and a lot of it has to do with uh, finding mentors, um, finding people to support you, having a network to support and buttress your journey, self-affirmations, continue to tell yourself that if other people have done it before, I can do it as well. Not falling down when the challenges hit, not saying, woe is me, but you brush yourself off, you take up your bed and you walk like it was written in the New Testament when Jesus told that gentleman at the pool of Bethesda, you have to continue to move forward and press on because there's people who are counting on you people who you know, names you know, and names that you don't know that are mm. watching your journey and wanting yeah. to see you succeed. And you need that. And we all need that from you. Tell me a little bit about the Roll Foundation. I know it's something near and dear to your heart. Uh, where can people find the information as well? And tell us what's next for the Roll Foundation. 
Well, Role Foundation, my Role Foundation is uh, is really important. It's something that I started in 2009. Uh, you know, I created it to, um, you know, address childhood uh, obesity and, and hypertension and families that need um, educational support as well. Uh, we've done wellness and leadership academies for foster care children in the state of Florida, as well as back home in the Bahamas. Um, we're trying to reach the most vulnerable individuals um, by just uh, uplifting in them and giving them the opportunity and the ability to dream again, rediscover their ability to dream. When you sometimes feel like you're on the margins, uh, you know, the Bible talks about in Matthew 25, 40, in as much as ye have done for the least of these, my brethren, ye have done unto me. The least of these are those individuals that sometimes feel like they're looking from the outside in and, and maybe don't have a part of the generation that's coming forward. Uh, and my opinion on that is that's not true. We need to put you in the center to give you a shot give you an opportunity to be successful like anybody else, regardless if you grew up in foster care, regardless if, you know, you have, uh, you grew up in a rough situation, a rough environment, regardless if your last name is linked to, you know, something that may be nefarious, it does not matter. You have the ability, you have the skill, you have the talent uh, to do wonderful things. And we're here to encourage that and provide the resources to support that here in the United States and also back home in the Bahamas. So we're, we're fired up. And, uh, you know, I'm excited about not only just operating in, in the, in the operating room in the hospital, trying to save lives and direct the course of lives uh, that come through to us at Mass General Hospital at Harvard, um, but also do more beyond and be an inspiration, be, a, be an advocate, be a, a role model, just like others have served for me. Um, this is great. And I'm also a father, which is probably the most important role that I have, being a husband and a father mm -hmm. uh, to four kids under the age of two. It's a lot of work, but <laughs> I love it. It's a blessing. So it's all good. Yeah. I just want you to repeat that four kids under the age of what? Two, two. <laughs> hey man, I said the most important thing is that you took time to be able to talk to me and, and forward progress. And you got four kids under the age of two. I'm over here running around when I got kids under the age of three and four. I'm like, nah, this is under two. But I do want to, my last question for you though, Myron, and I think this, it goes along to being a father. You're a, a neurosurgeon, former NFL player, uh, advocate. You have so many things going on. But when it comes down to the bedtime story, what is the Myron Roll go-to bedtime story? <laughs> it's Llama Llama Red Pajama. I don't know why they love that, but they really, really enjoy that one. And then if I don't do that, I give them a little Cocoa Melon, and they love that too. And it's just, you know, and then if I want to hit them with something that I also like, uh, for some reason, my kids love Stevie Wonder, like old school yeah. Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. They really get into it. They start moving and vibing to it. I'm like, they have old souls, man. They, they've been here before. So <laughs> it's uh, it's good. My wife, Latoya, she's really a rock star. She's the one who's just a, a champion. And I just do what she says. And we just try to do it together and uh, and make it work. But it's a blessing to see those young kids come up to you and say, hi, daddy. And I'm like, oh, man, just melt me down. So it's great. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. Byron, again, man, I appreciate the time. I know you are a very busy man, but I look forward to seeing everything that you got going on. And we know May 17th, The 2% Way, your upcoming book, man. Can't wait to read it. Uh, appreciate again the time, Myron. Talk to you soon, my brother. Thank you very much, Kirk. Appreciate you, brother. Sounds good. That was Myron Roll, the Dr. Myron Roll, newer surgeon, former NFL player, but man, just an all-around great dude. More Forward Progress coming up next. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Back here on Forward Progress. We get a chance to dive into um, a guy who spent 15 years in the National Football League. A guy who, look, trust me, was part of one of the greatest defenses i ever seen at the University of Colorado. That's when the Buffaloes was rocking. 
I don't know what's been going on since. That's another conversation for another day. But my guy, 15 years in the NFL, man, Chad Brown. And Chad, I, I want to start here because you spent all this time in the NFL, right? But it's been what you've been able to do after your career, your, your post-career, not the broadcasting, but sort of your endeavors. I mean, tell me about the entrepreneur that you are and what you've been able to accomplish since retiring from the National Football League. I've always been a bit of a, an entrepreneur, um, you yeah. know, didn't grow up with uh, wealthy parents. So if I wanted something, I had to make it happen on my own. So yeah. when I wanted that fresh outfit for eighth grade graduation, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd walk the neighborhood with, you know, a bucket of car wash materials and wash some cars so I could be fresh and fly, you know, for eighth grade graduation. When I wanted to wear Jordans for my, uh, my prom, you know, I had to do, make the same thing happen. So uh, the entrepreneurial spirit has always been a, a part of who I am. And so even when I was playing in the NFL, I recognized, obviously, that the NFL is not for long. And right. I've got a plan for a life, even if I've got, you know, tremendous money from the NFL. I'm not just going to sit around and wait for my next tea time. I got a plan for a life that I'm going to enjoy and be challenged by and be able to, uh, you know, have a focus when I get up every day. So uh, growing my business, first it was Pro Exotics Reptiles. I was one of the largest uh, commercial reptile producers on the planet. Um, and now with the animal shipping company, all pro shipping, ship your reptiles, ship your aquatics uh, in the same space, but using the previous experience with the animal shipping company and tying that to the, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the animal breeding company, now tying that to the animal shipping company and continuing to grow my name and brand within those animal spaces. Yeah, Chad, I think that's the interesting thing for me. It's one thing to say when I was a kid, I shoveled sidewalks and driveways i mowed the lawn i washed cards nothing to say yeah and after i you know after i stopped playing i started breeding reptiles and then <laughs> figure out how to ship them in a safe and convenient manner how did you get into that how is that the thing where it's like this is what i'm going to do with my post-playing career you know i've always been an animal person i've always really enjoyed animals uh, as a kid i was pretty shy and, and i even had a stutter as a kid so uh it was pretty easy to make friends with animals. They don't mind if you stutter. They don't mind if you're shy. They just want you to take care of them. So I've always been attracted to animals uh, because it was just a you know easier thing for me personally. And uh, when I was a kid growing up in Southern California, there were snakes and frogs and lizards in my backyard. So I got familiar with reptiles. And then I'll date myself with this statement here. Before the crocodile hunter, there was a show called uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was what I watched as a kid. That was like yeah. kind of the first animal show. And then uh, for my seventh birthday, uh, my dad, recognizing my, you know, passion for animals, got me a subscription to National Geographic. And so every month I got a chance to get that magazine and flip through that magazine and be transported to the jungles of Indonesia or to the grasslands of Africa. And so that's kind of further enabled my, you know, my animal passion and love to, to move forward. So once I got into college and I had my own space, and I was no longer in my mom's house who said no snakes <laughs> in the house. Right. That's when I got my first snake, my freshman uh -huh. year at the University of Colorado. And um, when you got a passion for something, you know, one thing turns into two and two turns into 12. And that kind of happened with the reptile thing. I met a guy at a local pet store in Boulder who was breeding reptiles in his basement and selling them all over the country. And I thought, this is great. This is a job 
kind of thing that I can do a hobby slash job that the NCAA won't know about. I can make some money. And, you know, when I sell my babies and, you know, it's not going to be illegal. I'm not going to be, you know, uh, get the buffaloes in trouble or anything. So each spring, uh, after I was able to kind of pair up my animals, I would sell my babies to some students on campus, the local pet stores. And, you know, I had some money in my pocket. I was like, wow, this is great. I've got a passion that's fun and cool for me. And yet I can still make money. And then at the same time, uh, there were great professors at the University of Colorado uh, when I would walk around the biology building who got a chance to know me and my passion. So I would get free rodents for my snakes. So they were kind of enabling this whole thing to happen. Um, so that's kind of how it all came together. Once I got into the NFL and had some money in my pocket, I built a, you know, a, a large reptile business. We had over 12,000 square feet of uh, breeding space, thousands of animals. Uh, you know, freezers full of rodents and rabbits and things like that, and a staff of about 12 employees. Look, man, first of all, you talk all these snakes, man. I, I'm always thinking of snakes on the plane, anaconda with Ice Cube and J-Lo, Chad. Like, I, I had to go there. I bring that up because in a lot of communities, there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to reptiles and snakes like that. So how much of an education piece is it for you, for people who say, man, you into snakes? Oh, I don't know about that. What's that all about? What's that education piece uh, tied to it? Well, there definitely is some, uh, you know, there's some cultural uh, yes. about uh, snakes and reptiles in general that are that are clear. You know, right. uh, as, you know, three guys of, of color, we come from, you know, most likely communities where snakes were not, you know, part of the cultural accepted kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, so uh, there is there is that. And then, you know, uh, within the South, uh, there's definitely a more religious leaning in the South versus, say, where I grew up in California. So in the South, it's, you know, things are very uh, biblically based. You know, the, the snake was a serpent who deceived, you know, Adam and Eve kind of thing. So there's wow. some of that that you're fighting as well. Um, but, you know, as we move forward in society, some of these myths are broken. Uh, when I first started doing reptile shows, so anybody who's ever been to, a, say, a uh, a memorabilia show where there's right. a guy who's selling jerseys, there's a guy who's selling signed helmets, and there's a guy who's selling football cars, there's a guy who's selling signed pictures, or well, reptile shows in a similar thing. It's in a large convention hall, and people rent out tables, but they have reptiles for sale rather than signed helmets. So when I first started doing reptile shows, it was a bunch of, you know, older white men who were into it, and guys who had tattoos and rode up on Harleys to the reptile convention. But fast forward now 20 plus years, uh, I just did a show a couple of months ago. Um, there were moms and daughters. There were packs of teenage girls. There were, uh, you know, folks of every different ethnic background. So hmm. just as society has become more diverse, the reptile hobby and the animal hobbies in general have become more diverse. So it's, uh, it's a great place to, 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 to really um, see where the hobby has has grown and become. And yeah, the packs of teenage girls, they're not into, say, the giant snakes. They're into <laughs> more of the, the cute geckos. Yeah. The, the moms and fathers <laughs> were walking around looking at frogs. They had, a, you know, some giant terrarium in their house and they were going to stock it with all these cool colored frogs and stuff like that. So uh, the reptile hobby has enough diversity within it from an animal perspective. And that I think that diversity also drives the diversity in the people who are into it. Because if you want a giant snake, sure, there's giant snakes. You want small snakes, there's that. But there's also frogs and geckos and tortoises and turtles as well. Um, so there's enough animal diversity to, credit, to, 
to create a demand from a very diverse client base. What What's something that, you know, obviously you were, as you said, an animal enthusiast, and even in college you got into the breeding, but as you expanded into this space, what's something that you learned that you were just, that blew your mind? Uh, I've always related animal breeding to football because that's mm. obviously my background. And in football, there's an off season and there's an in season and there's an ultimate goal at the end. Um, so from a business management perspective, when I am a reptile breeder or particularly in my case as a commercial operation, um, I've got to train all my staff kind of like a coach trains his players. In the off season, when we're not in breeding season, we've got to make sure we get our animals up to size. Anybody who's skinny after breeding, we got to get some weight on that female. We've got to come up with our plan. We've got to come up with our playbook. What males do I want to put with what females when breeding season comes around? You can't just do it all during the season. The off season is critical for football and it's also critical for animal breeding. So what I do in the off season will really uh, instruct my success during the breeding season. And then once breeding season starts, it's kind of like in season. I've got an ultimate goal of hatching eggs or having live babies at the end of this. I've got to do everything in my power to make sure I give all those animals everything that they possibly need. If they want a hot place or a cold place or a humid place or a dry place, I've got to provide all that in the cage so these animals can do what I hope that they will do, which is produce babies for me so I can continue to make money and have a, a viable business. So uh, the correlation of football and reptiles uh, became very clear in my mind and to be able to break it down into kind of the segments you do during football, off season, preseason, first quarter of the season, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, playoff, Super Bowl, we kind of had the same thing in the reptile space from off season, beginning of breeding season, pairing them up. Now the female's starting to grow some follicles. She's not quite pregnant yet. Okay, now she's officially pregnant. Now we've got eggs. Now we got to incubate the eggs. Now the eggs hatch. And yes, I got my Super Bowl victory because I was the first person on the planet to hatch this particular species or this particular color phase of reptiles, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I know you had a couple shots at the Super Bowl, man. I know you you missed out, Chad. I didn't want to bring that part up. <laughs> Why are you bringing the old stuff, man? Hey, man, fifteen years in the NFL, you you, you did a lot, man. You were one of the great linebackers, uh, the guy who I know I wanted to be like as well when I came into the league. But I don't want to hit you with one football question, though, Chad. I, I know you recently had an appearance and you talked a little bit about the, just the lack of diversity when it comes to NFL head coaches and just hiring in general. What are you seeing the NFL on that front? It seems like, hey, in the management side, they've gotten better. But yet, when it comes to head coaches, there's still a lack of that diversity that's needed in the NFL. Yeah, uh, I think you know improvement is happening. But as we know, uh, and with racial issues, the improvement tends to be very incremental. Um, and sometimes there can be, you know, success and then things slide back again. Mm -hmm. There was a while where there was three or four or five, you know, African-American head coaches in the NFL. Things, things slide back again uh, to, you know, just a, a lesser number. So uh, I think the, the process is difficult one to, to make progress on when you're trying to get, uh, and, you know, let's be blunt here, a majority of owners are older white men. When you want to get some older white men to, you know, hits their organizational wagon, their franchise wagon to somebody, they want to do it with somebody who they're very comfortable with. And even if it's a, a, a not a spoken form of racism that, you know, I hate black people, I'll never have a black head coach. Uh, 
just the kind of uh, behind the scenes, more subtle things of a sense of comfort. Um, he may not be comfortable around African-American men, even though they seem very qualified when he's making his decision in his mind as an owner, I want somebody who I'm comfortable with. And you know, he may not see it in racial terms, but in the end, African-Americans get fewer opportunities. They, the opportunities they get are much shorter and they're not given as much leash. Um, but I think the, the NFL overall, the biggest problem is not necessarily based on uh, race, it's based on nepotism. There are over 120 coaches and front office personnel who share the last name of somebody else in the NFL. So they get opportunities that former players and other people just don't get. So because your uncle's a GM, now you get to be a scout. Uh, because you know your, your dad was a position coach someplace else, now you get a chance to step into the door as a quality control guy. Um, you know, I've done four coaching internships in the NFL and it was the first go around was a little shocking. And by the time I did my third internship, it was par for the course. There's going to be six or eight people who are part of this, you know, coaching circle and front office circle or personnel staff who are related to somebody else. And they got the job, not necessarily because of their qualification qualifications, but because they're directly related to somebody. Now, once they get into the league, I think they've got a chance to prove themselves and then they have to prove that they can stay. So is there a skill that keeps them in the league? But that first opportunity comes through nepotism. It is, it is a clear mm -hmm. thing within the NFL. Pete Carroll had two of his sons as coaches when I did my <laughs> internship with the Seahawks. Yeah. Two of his sons as position coaches. And I understand, as an NFL head coach, you don't spend a lot of time at home. You want to spend time with your kids. And they got an interest in what dad does. And I understand all of that. But when we're talking about trying to make it a level playing field and make equal opportunity for everybody, this nepotism thing takes away about 20% of the jobs and the opportunities from everybody else. So uh, when I want to come in as a 15-year NFL vet, as Kirk pointed out, I'm 38, 39 years old trying to get into an NFL coaching circle versus this kid who graduated from college, got a job as a quality control guy when he was 21 years old. Now I'm 17 years, 18 years behind right. this kid because of the opportunity that he got that I have no chance of getting that same kind of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Hey man, Chad, I, I know you're a busy guy, but I, we appreciate the time as always getting caught up and still, you know, you're on a Mount Rushmore of my <laughs> baddest light skinned dudes to play in the NFL. <laughs> You and Rod Woodson, man, I tell you, y'all, y'all first team All Americans up top, man. But man, I seriously, Chad, uh, look, I've been a big fan of yours all the way back to when you was at Colorado. Appreciate the time, brother. We we'll catch up with you soon. Well, I appreciate the uh, the kind words, my friend. And uh, yes, light skin doesn't mean you soft, man. We still <laughs> no, not at all, man. That was Chad Brown, man, fifteen year NFL veteran. Well, I mean, guess what, man? We did it again, brother. I appreciate you coming through. And uh, stepping in for my guy Jax as he gets the uh, gets the pipes all ready for you know the Miami Heat in their uh, Eastern Conference semifinals. Uh, thanks again to Dr. Myron Roll and Chad Brown, 15-year NFL player. This has been Forward Progress. See you next time.